This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. I am sometimes baffled by like how late in the game they come to be. But this is a Christmas missing persons case from 1986. He is under missing person number 70806 in Namus. I didn't see him in Charlie Project. Did you? No. Mm-mm. His Namus case is created on June 16, 2020. So that's a significant amount of time later. And as we've discussed sort of ad nauseum, there are a lot of different reasons you can end up so late in the game. Uh, being put in that way. Uh, I'll just go by what's on Namus to start off with. Uh, This guy's 37 years old on December 25th, 1986. In Namus, he is listed as Juan Toledo, T-O-L-E-D-O. He's listed as a Caucasian male, five foot, five inches tall and 140 pounds. He's got brown hair, brown eyes. It's interesting. I had some trouble looking for him because somebody decided that they were going to put a lot of dashes on, on his profile. His middle name is a dash. His nickname is a dash. His height is five foot, five inches to five foot, five inches tall. His weight is 140 pounds to 140 pounds. That messes up. Like when I go to do searches, sometimes if someone has done that, it makes things inconsistent. Here's what they say about him. They say that he has a black baseball cap with the playboy symbol on it and either a blue or burgundy jacket with a burgundy shirt white sweat socks and gray shoes. I think it indicates that he had LSW, I think long sleeve something, but I don't know what that means. You know what LSW would mean here? Uh, no, long sleeve. Uh. Yeah, it didn't, it didn't work for me either. I tried it. Uh, I said that they had, that he had a yellow metal or gold chain with a cross and he has tattoos on both arms. Uh, you, this is interesting to me because you found something about this missing person that you're going to have to explain. I mean, I see it, but you're going to have to explain. What I you don't did have it. I don't have a great explanation. Um, so this guy, uh, you know, missing Christmas, uh, 1986, uh, from, uh, Brooklyn, right? Yeah. In Kings County, New York. Okay. And so anytime there's 
actually, he has a little bit more information than a lot of people have, honestly. I mean, there is a description of what he was wearing, except I guess he didn't have on any pants. But uh, that, so that's more, right, than we get a lot of times. And uh, so I look, you know, further, what else is there out there about this guy? And actually, I don't think I've ever seen this before. So in on Friday, November 20th of 1987, which would have been uh, just short of a year of him being uh, missing, last seen uh, 12-25-86, right? There's a small ad in the Daily News, the New York Daily News, and it says, Missing Juan Toledo or Toledo Rodriguez. And it says, uh, you know, missing since 1225, and it gives the description. And uh, it says, you know, missed by loved ones, and it says, please call. And this actually has a picture of him. Yeah, it has it has a photo of him. Um, it's not a great photo, um, and it's got the uh, that that's crazy. It's got the old New York Police Department Missing Persons Bureau on it. That's the phone number there. But it, this also adds in parentheses depressed. I saw that, and um, I wonder if you know that's the answer, right? Because uh, it, it to me, it's really significant to put that or anything else that lends towards possible suicide in a description of a missing person. Yeah. It, it's odd. The name thing is odd as well. Like why were they calling him Juan Toledo or Toledo Rodriguez? Like, is there some um, kind of, go ahead. Well, I don't know, but I assume he like his name's Juan Toledo, but uh, you know, he may have had an alter ego like an alias or something you use or yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I've seen it, you know, where people do things all the time, but it sounds like Toledo Rodriguez would have been more like a nickname situation. Like somebody using his last name. And then well, I was wondering if it was like a language barrier and his name is actually Juan Toledo Rodriguez. I don't, I don't know. I mean, yeah, that's possible, but it, it doesn't, it seems like you could overcome that barrier pretty easily. Yeah, even in the eighties, you should have been able to. You, you now, when did when was that from? When was this clipping from? It's from November twentieth, um, Friday, November twentieth, nineteen eighty-seven, and it's in the New York Daily News. Um, I've never seen a little ad like this put out. Have you? Um, I've seen something similar. This is an odd one. I uh, the reason I was asking is because if I recall correctly, that's Black Friday. 1987. So it's the day after Thanksgiving, right? I don't, I don't know. Thanksgiving it could be. Thanksgiving 1987 would have been November 26th. Uh, so it's a week before. A week before. Okay. So it's a week before Thanksgiving. I don't know. Maybe they're trying to see him for Thanksgiving. I, it's interesting that that popped up here. Well, and so, you know, the name of the case was created June 16th, 2020. This clearly shows he was on the radar as a missing person not too long after he went missing or uh, not too long after he was last seen. Yeah. I tend to agree with you there. That's what and was somebody cared enough about him to, you know, either put this ad in or have uh, the, have law enforcement put it in or whatever. Right. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, you know, he's still missing to this day. Um, I do think that um, maybe we should submit the picture's name as. Oh, I could. Do that. I can. Um, yeah, I'll do that. I'll 
I'll be, I'm making a, a footnote here. That That's I one of the saddest things to me is when missing persons cases that are, you know, entered into NAMIS don't have a picture. I don't even know. Like, it, it's strange to me that he has this picture here in the way that you got a hold of it. That's very interesting and a little odd, to be honest. It I, is odd. But this is all I found on him. So, like I said, I go further, especially when there's, like, no circumstances surrounding their disappearance or anything like that. I always look the person up. And a lot of times, you know, there's never just one person by that name, right? Yeah. And so you have to distinguish, well, which one's the missing person, right? Well, in this case, this is all I found about this guy. So. Huh. I... I Stuff like that's always fascinating. I never know exactly what the source is for things like that happening. And uh, and I've said this to you recently, like there was an Amber Alert for someone and I saw the Amber Alert. And then a couple days later, it wasn't that she was missing. She fit all the criteria for the Amber Alert in some ways because she was with someone and there's a possibility she was in danger. But ultimately, the way the Amber Alert ended was in her arrest for murder. And I was like, what in the world? Because I could. She was missing though. Yeah. She was, she was not found by the police. And then you're right. But I always, I don't like it when things. She could have just as easily have been a victim in that situation. They didn't know till they, they found her what they were dealing with. I know what you're saying, but like, and maybe that's a bad example. I always get a little dubious and and I'm specifically referencing this ad being taken out when I think that. Oh, so you're thinking it could be sinister. Well, like what if that your loved ones missed is actually like he owes somebody money and they're, they want to take it out on him or the cops are looking for him for something. And they're just like, well, right. And so like that person's not going to respond to that. Right. But it does say he was depressed. Yeah, it does. Uh, I, I still, you know, it's a, it's a missing person's case. It's a long time ago. This is a long, long time ago. And I feel like uh, those cases do not get looked at as much, especially when they have as little information as this one had. And to be quite frank, I looked at it on the list and then you sent me this and I was like, oh, well, that actually is worth talking about. I, I feel like we would be remiss if we were just listing because some of these missing persons cases don't even have a height and a weight and an age. It's just a name. And a place they went missing from in an approximate date. Those are really hard to talk about because there's literally nothing to say. Yeah. Um, and those are actually, and so I, I'm constantly conflicted about it because I'm like, well, I could just say their name and like where they were last seen or like at least what's on here, right? And then I'm like, but these are actually some of the cases that need the most attention because there isn't any information. I, um, it, it's, it's wild. The difference that like missing persons versus what we're doing is with these exoneration cases, a lot of the exonerations, even the older ones, I've been able to find tons of information of how that goes down because of court records, but a missing person doesn't necessarily generate any kind of real report. And once like, so clearly Somebody a year after this guy went missing was looking for him regardless because the missing persons bureau phone number is on there. Whether it's somebody filing a missing persons report because they want to see if he surfaces or if it's actual family or the police are doing something. Somebody's looking for this guy 
like less than a year after he goes missing. That alone, and the fact that it was entered into NamUs, whether it's a backlog clear or whatever in 2020, uh, that's a reason to mention him today. And just right. sort of, you know, so somebody's at least talking about him. You know, and I do find some people don't want to be found in uh, Juan Toledo Rodriguez or Toledo Rodriguez or Juan Toledo. Like he may not want to be found. He may have long departed this earth. Uh, but he is, uh, for all intents and purposes, reported missing. The, this indicates to me he's reported missing in New York, and he's got an NCIC entry. So, and more than likely, um, I'm just going to go out on a limb here. He, his DNA is probably not in the system. Uh, the system being like the Namus system. Oh, you're talking like North Houston stuff, like the Texas stuff, North Texas. Gosh. Eventually I'll use I'm just saying that because there's so little information entered into NamUs, I doubt there's a DNA sample that would correlate with any sort of unidentified bodies, right? Yeah, sometimes I can tell because of the way they put things together. In this instance, I can't tell. I, I, I doubt it. He doesn't have, he's not excluded from anything. So when I see something that goes in in like much later years, I do sometimes wonder if like they were like, you know what, we should collect DNA just in case. Let's see if any of his relatives are alive who filed that report. Sometimes I think that that happens. I don't think it's the more probable answer. I think you're right. I think there's probably not DNA on file. Well, because wouldn't they have gotten more information? Maybe. So the NCIC entries can be more detailed than uh, NamUs. And I'm sure that some of the New York entries can be more detailed. With this kind of gap in time, I doubt it. I doubt that that happened. I doubt this is probably all they have. That's kind of depressing to say it that way. But Well, it seems to me like you're right. Because where else, if, if there was more information, where else on earth would they put it besides here? If he had a warrant or something, that would have more detailed information on it, but it wouldn't necessarily be public. That's where I was kind of heading. I guess so, but like that, I mean, to me, like a case that's uh, 30, what, seven years old, irrelevant, because that warrant would have been long recalled, unless it's for murder or something. Yeah, you're, you're probably right. But then he would have been a fugitive, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like any additional information about Granted, so this is another one of the cases where we have no idea, like, when this was reported, like, because it could be, like, in February, you know, his siblings or cousins or whatever realized they hadn't heard from him, and they get to thinking about it, and they're like, the last time we talked to him was on Christmas, right? Yeah. So that's, you know, we don't know what's happening here, but uh, somebody cared enough to follow up uh, just short of a year, so there, it, there was at least somebody looking for him. Yeah, and you know it has a an active uh, New York City missing persons squad case number on it. It's a it's a newer number, which was weird to me. So, I, you know, it's it's just a Kings County missing persons number. It's got Darren O'Neill as a detective, and I I, I briefly googled him, but that was going to be complex trying to see if he was more recent or if it was an older name. That's some one of the ways you can tell like if something's really old is if you Google it, the detective is retired, then literally someone had a card that they were filling out. And that's how one ends up in NamUs because they don't even check to see if uh, you know, the detective is still around. And in this case, I did not uh, uh, immediately figure out a way to sort uh, Darren O'Neill out. I will say that 
there's a active Darren O'Neill with a missing person squad with a badge number and it didn't come from a good source, so I don't want to like drag it all up. It's, okay. like, he's on he's on a list, you know what I mean? Like, uh, you know, six allegations, five substantiated, blah blah blah. So I was like, I think I'm just gonna I'm gonna skip that for now. Anyways, we have an exoneration case for today, uh, and it actually has some pretty uh, a pretty interesting case sort of uh, with it. Now, this ties back to something we already covered. The case itself sort of stands on its own. It's being interesting. This is the case of uh, Joseph Sledge. He's also out of North Carolina, but out of Bladen County, North Carolina, a town called Elizabethtown. Had you ever heard of this case before? No, I have not. Mm -mm. Okay. So uh, the details on this case are the it's a crime that occurred in 1976. It is a murder. Um, the... The defendant that we're going to be talking about, at he was a black male, and at the time of the crime, he was 34 years old. And we'll just dive into the crime here because this one does have uh, some some lengthy materials if we care to go that route. On the afternoon of September 6, 1976, the bodies of 74-year-old Josephine Davis and her 57-year-old daughter, Eileen Davis, were found beaten and stabbed to death in their home in Elizabethtown, North Carolina. Both were last seen alive around 10.30 p.m. the night before, so on September 5th, 1976. A medical examiner estimated the time of death between 8 a.m. and 10 a.m., but the blood was still wet at 5 p.m. when police arrived, indicating that they were probably killed later in the day. Both of the victims' dresses were pulled over their heads, they had been beaten and stabbed repeatedly, and blood was found throughout the house, suggesting that the killer dripped blood going room to room. Eileen had been raped, and there were bloody palm prints found on either side of her head. Those palm prints were believed to have been left by her assailant. And I'm going to state what it says here, but I'm also going to say that like some of this stuff gets dubious for me. The And this is coming out of the, the Michigan... Uh, National Registry of Exonerations with the description I'm about to use. They say that African-American head and pubic hairs were found on her naked torso and embedded in blood on her forehead. Jo that's Eileen. And Josephine's purse was missing. Almost immediately, police suspected 34-year-old Joseph Sledge Jr., who less than 24 hours earlier had escaped from the nearby White Lake Prison Camp, a minimum security prison where he was serving a four-year sentence for misdemeanor larceny convictions. Okay, right there. That's a whole bucket of stuff. He's serving four years for a bunch of misdemeanors that they piled into a felony. And I got to say, that is terrible. I don't see where, uh, was it actually a felony or was it just for misdemeanor larceny convictions? Uh, he has this weird thing that's part of this plea deal. This plea deal is actually from much earlier. So the conviction date of, of what he's hanging out there for looks like it's April 18th, 1973. He has a bunch of uh, tied together misdemeanor larcenies that have a receiving stolen goods charge attached to them. Which is the uh, felony? 
Yeah, that would be the felony. But it, I can't tell if he's actually serving time for that receiving or not. I can say that he has a June 15th, 1973 attempted prison escape and a uh, February 21st, 1975 attempted prison escape on his record. So, right, so he, he definitely wanted to get out of prison, huh? Yeah, he did not care very much. Um, did he it, have? Um, did he have any violent crimes? Well, he ends up with with these charges, but these are the most violent things that he ends up on on his list. But when he, but like at, when he was the escapee, like and this that leads up to this case, it no, was it, for the the larceny, right? Uh, and, 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 the, and the earlier attempted. Um, he has a larceny of a motor vehicle. I think it's the same day as the escape or the day after. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Um, so he has a bunch, he's like, he's a pretty petty criminal when this happens. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's the nicest way I can say it. I mean, he's a criminal, but like what he's doing does not compare to murder. Right. But the, you know, the fact that he's an escaped inmate, uh, without diving deeper into that, he's an escaped inmate, right? Of course he did this. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's where they're going with this. So by the time Sledge gets arrested, he gets arrested by Bladen County Sheriff's detectives on September 9th in Dillon, South Carolina. So it's a couple of days later, that's 50 miles, give or take away from Elizabethtown, uh, in Bladen County. He knew that he was a suspect in the highly publicized murders. And if you go back through, uh, the archives on this, you can kind of see they're looking for him. They're, they're definitely, sort of honed in on him, escape prisoner nearby, uh, a, a crime like this, they automatically jump to like he did it. So Sledge tells them that he had arrived in Fayetteville, North Carolina, which is about 40 miles from the scene of the crime by 3.30 a.m. on September the 6th. So that would be several hours ahead of what the medical examiner is saying is their time of death. But if they died later in the day, it's way ahead of that. He led authorities to the location where he had discarded clothing and he retraced his route from the White Lake prison camp to where he stole a car that had been parked with the keys in the ignition. Police confiscated the car and at the time they just returned Sledge back to White Lake. Although Sledge is a suspect, he doesn't end up getting charged right away. There's no physical evidence found that could link Sledge to the scene of the crime. His shoes, which he had not changed since prison, didn't have any blood on them, and they did not match the bloody shoe prints found at the scene. The governor of North Carolina at the time offered a $2,500 reward for information about the crime that led to an arrest, but the crime sat unsolved uh, more than a year later. The murders are among several that occur in this area during this period of time, meaning sort of the surrounding year. And then newspeople published articles and aired reports on television, and it created sort of a, a heightened sense of fear in Bladen County, North Carolina. By December 1977, the pressure was continuing to build, so the reward was doubled to $5,000. In early 1978, Bladen County residents are quoted in the local newspapers as saying that they were becoming afraid. There were several murders in the mostly rural area that were still unsolved. Residents had begun to form some armed groups that were patrolling a wide area of the region, including the Cape Fear River Basin, which is actually quite huge, uh, at night. 
One resident was quoted as saying it was getting to the point where people were going to have to enforce the law themselves to be safe. At about this time, law enforcement and prison officials began interviewing inmates who had come in contact with Sledge. In February of 1978, Sledge was indicted for the murders of Josephine and Eileen Davis, based primarily on statements from two prison inmates that he had admitted committing the crime. Now, Sledge was never charged with rape or robbery, but he does end up charged with that uh, stealing that car, larceny from the home, and multiple counts of second-degree murder. And he also gets charged with the escape from prison, which he did. He goes to trial in May of 1978. That's less than three months after he's indicted on these crimes. The trial ends up being moved over to Columbus County because the judge decided that the pretrial publicity was too great in this case. All those, you know, escape prisoner wanted for questioning um, had kind of bubbled over. But the most critical evidence for the prosecution is the testimony of, of the two prison inmates. One of them, his name is Herman Baker, and the other one's name is Donnie Sutton. Baker said that he first met Sledge in a pool hall in Fayetteville, North Carolina in 1969, and that while they were in a weight room at the Carthage Prison Unit in 1977, Sledge told him about escaping from prison. He told him that he had come upon the, the Davis residence and Baker testified that Sledge told him he entered the house and Josephine confronted him, demanding to know what he was doing. Baker said that Sledge provided details that police said only the killer would know. For instance, Baker testified that Sledge told him he struck Josephine in the jaw and knocked her down. Police had never disclosed that publicly that Josephine had a broken jaw. Baker said that Sledge told him after he knocked Josephine to the floor, he began to stab her. He, Herman, all, Herman Baker also said that Sledge told him that when Eileen came at him from behind, he stabbed her as well. He told the jury that as Sledge left the house, he grabbed a can of black pepper and he sprinkled it on the back steps of the house so that the she-devil spirits of the women, both of whom were white, would not follow him. And Baker also said that Sledge told him that white women were she-devils. Now, when it comes to Donnie Sutton, he testified that while incarcerated in the Columbus County Jail, Sledge told him that he had killed both women. Sutton testified that Sledge admitted killing the women and referred to them as she-devils who were bad for the black man out to get their minds. That's a quote. Sutton testified that Sledge told him that the black man should rebel over this and should kill everyone that really should cross their path. Both witnesses denied having been promised any favorable treatment or any portion of the $5,000 reward. An FBI agent testified that he had examined pubic hairs found on Eileen's body. He said the hairs were microscopically alike to pubic hair obtained from Sledge. The analyst further testified that the hairs could have originated from the defendant and added, I look at hairs on a day-to-day -day basis and I find it extremely unlikely when hair samples taken from two different individuals at random cannot be differentiated between. Hairs are quite distinct in their own innate microscopic characteristics. I'll pause there for a second. What do you know about microscopic hair analysis, Maggie? 
Um, well, honestly, not very much, but I know that this is uh, pretty much debunked science at this point. Yeah. So, okay. Today, there are things that can be done with hair analysis. Hair analysis is primarily a forensic toxicology subsect. It's not what they were doing back then. Meaning you can analyze the chemical makeup of hair to determine if there were drugs in someone's system. You could do like LCMS or GCMS, which are, for people who don't know, those are different types of chromatography. Uh, one is mass spectrometry done with liquid chromatography. The other one is gas chromatography with mass spectrometry. These instruments are used primarily to detect drugs. Now, microscopic hair analysis con con uh, consists of the comparison of several strands of hair under a literal microscope to determine if the physical characteristics of each individual hair are consistent with each other or not. Now, in the 50s, this had come to be a accepted forensic science. It has been replaced at this point. And here's why. Researchers were kind of just talking bunk. Now, where it became uh, popular and sort of like, I, I guess entertainment would be the word, would be in crime fiction, specifically in Sherlock Holmes. And a lot of fictional crime shows and police procedurals over the years have continued to talk about microscopic hair analysis. Skepticism about claims used by these type witnesses, like this FBI agent, in the 1970s and the 1980s became more prevalent. Researchers said that in 1974, that the whole process was inherently subjective. By 1984, so some years later, the FBI wrote that hair analysis cannot positively match one single person. Now, that sort of changed in the 1990s because DNA profiling coming along, it introduced a new technique into forensic investigations. So if a hair had a root, there was a level of hair analysis that could be done. Also, DNA analysis of old cases from the 70s and 80s, it ended up contradicting conclusions about a number of matches that had been made that resulted in con convictions based on hair analysis. By 1994, the Justice Department had created a task force, and eventually they would review around 6,000 cases over the next 10 or 12 years. They focused on the work of one particularly interesting examiner named Michael Malone. So all of these reviews came after there were reports that there was sloppy work by examiners at the FBI lab, and that was producing unreliable forensic evidence in court trials. At first, the FBI buried this, but the Washington Post reported that instead of releasing those findings, they slowly began to make them available to the prosecutors in those affected cases. There was a major study done on FBI laboratory hair analysis, and they honed in on cases between 1996 and 2000. It ends up getting released. The study gets released in 2002, and it showed that 11% of hair analysis matches were contradicted by DNA analysis. So that 
continues on and continues on. And eventually it's found that hair analysis is pretty much unreliable if it doesn't include a lot of other evidence. And that includes like cross DNA comparison from a root or video evidence among other issues. Well, and they can even raise, um, now they can get mitochondrial DNA from hair that doesn't have a root attached. I'm, that's fairly new though. Yeah, that's a newer technology and it hasn't been, uh, like the studies on that are slowly being released. My point with this is, this is an FBI agent talking about sledge having hair that matches hair from the crime scene in, in this instant case we're talking about in Elizabethton. I don't think after that, that Sledge stood a chance. No, he didn't, because that was actually relied upon back then. I question, though, do you think that uh, when this was happening in in the 70s, do you think that that FBI agent believed what he was saying? I think, you know, to some degree, I think, yeah, I think they thought it was real. And I thought that, so... There is even today a percentage of hair analysis cases that have held up with further scrutiny and additional evidence. But well, the, right, but it's I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just gonna say, but 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 no matter how you look at hair analysis, it's a little bit more art than science. I would say so. Um I would say that one thing that might be reliable would be an exclusion, right? For example, now these were pubic hairs in this particular case. But like, let's say if, you know, you're doing a comparison of hairs from a crime scene that are, you know, they have, they're black and coarse, and then you, you know, the defendant's hair is blonde and fine, right? If you're looking at that kind of difference, I would say that, you know, an exclusion could possibly be reliable, right? But I don't, and I don't know if it's just like, because I'm looking back on it and, you know, we didn't experience this. Well, I don't know. It may have happened in my lifetime, but I've never seen a situation where it came down to like a comparison of the two hairs being, you know, the linchpin. But to me, it doesn't make any sense that a scientist or a lab technician or an FBI agent would actually believe what they were saying. Yeah, I, you know, some, okay, you've got a number of problems that come up and I, I'm going to throw this one out there and I'm going to let it sit and we're not really going to talk a lot about it. There's an element of racism with hair analysis that you can't deny exists and it causes problems with other elements of cases. Now, in this case, you know, there's not a lot of cross race stuff going on here because they, they're, they're identifying this and saying this is African-American hair. That's an African-American defendant. The, the problem that you, you get, and the reason I said it's more art than science, is like there are some people that take their job seriously and are good at their job and can, on some level, make some comparisons. They tend to state them in terms of possible likelihoods, not what this guy did where he's saying... I find it unlikely that the that two hairs like could match like this and not be the suspect we're looking for. Like right. there, there's an element of that that's like just out of this agent's 
this agent's not named in this thing. You gotta go hunting to find him. But there's an element of that where he's just out of his depth. And I and I find it hard to believe that he believed he was in his depth. But I guess it is possible. So my point is like, okay, so if he he believed he was within his depth, then he's just incompetent. But if he knew like there's no way I could ever possibly tell that, which seems to be what the case is, you know, then he's being uh, corrupt, right? Yeah. I Okay. I agree with you on those statements and I've made similar statements in the past, but I've discovered something in going through all these exonerations that's interesting to me. Some people are so inept that they're corrupt. I, I don't know. Does I, that make sense? Like, yeah. like, I'm just saying, like some people... I just so believe their up. own horn being tooted that like they don't realize that they're crashing the car. To me, I, I let them, I give people like that um, a bit of a pass uh, when the, cause there's no malicious intent behind that. It's just ignorance, right? Yeah. But if you, if you, if you complete acts of ignorance hundreds of times in these criminal cases, you're corrupt. I agree. I'm just saying, Somebody like going, I'm going to get this dude and I'm going to falsely testify to do so is much, much worse to me. I don't think it goes like that, though. I think the way that it goes in a case like this one, and this is just my opinion and I am making it up out of whole cloth, but it's how I see it. I think this guy goes, I can help. They've got a guy and all this other evidence says it's him. So I can help by using my expertise that, this genuinely looks alike to me because honestly, they probably did look alike to him. It's the authoritative statements he's making that are the problem where he's saying like, it can't be anyone else. It'd be unlikely. Well, and to me that translates, well, I guess it depends on what he believed, but to me that, that mostly translates to what I was saying where he's going yeah, to these match, you know? Um, so I would much rather somebody be oblivious to the fact that they're just wrong. But I, I think the split on oblivious versus corrupt is probably like 80-20. I think 80% of people that are doing things like this are oblivious and 20% of them are corrupt or less. And, and I do think the, the rampant repetitive nature that comes out, like, cause you know, this, whoever it was, I, this wasn't the only time he did this, I would imagine. Right. Correct. Um, and so, yes, that's corruption, but like, did they know any better is a whole different story with regard to my feelings about that situation. Right. Yeah. You know, it's, it's weird because if you get too deep into these old inept cases, like you'll start to realize that our entire criminal justice system is built on a lot of inept stuff that had to be fixed along the way. And I always end up wondering kind of like you mentioned in some of these episodes and maybe in this one, um, where I start wondering, like, what in-depth things are going to come out of what we think are facts now? DNA. Like, that's my worst fear, that when it when it crumbles. Yeah. I, I don't think it's going to. I really don't. I see, I can see different attributes between, like, this microscopic hair analysis versus, like, a DNA profile comparison. Right? Yeah. The attributes are are not the same. Like saying, you know, that you've got, you know, a color and a texture and a whatever else they look to compare uh, two pieces, uh, 
two strands of hair. Um, I feel like it's, those are subjective, uh, things that you come up with. Right. Yeah. And, uh, cause you know, what I see as the color might not be what you see as the color, but like with DNA, like when it's being tested and when the alleles are being defined, like that is not somebody subjectively doing that. Right. There's an objective test that, that points back to what's showing up in a profile. Yes, there's accepted science that results in standards and eventually accreditations and testing that is thought to be uh, so reliable that it becomes a cornerstone on which certain uh, forensic uh, what are the procedures are, are built on. And when that happens... Uh, yeah, we we build out these, I don't want to call them shortcuts, but we build out these uh, shorthand ways to back up the science and to investigate cases from these like microscopic and forensic angles that we wouldn't ordinarily be able to do that. Right. And it's just concerning because DNA is right on par with what was previously used that has now been largely debunked, right? That is a rabbit hole. If we go, if we go too far down that, we're not coming back because like, I'm with you. I I understand what you're saying. Like you're saying like what happens when something is found that like, I don't, so I don't think DNA will be as affected as things like this, but at some point in time, there is going to like, like we're going to face a major problem with DNA. I don't know what it's going to be. Well, I I feel like, um, so let's say that I don't see how an FBI agent did a hair analysis, a microscopic hair analysis comparison testified to the statement that was made according to what we're going off of here. Right. It was that like he worked with them every day on a day-to-day basis. And it was extremely unlikely that hair samples taken from two different individuals at random cannot be differentiated between. I, I think that that statement, like it's ridiculous, right? To the point where I don't see how he could have been any sort of expert uh, worth the testimony he was given. However, that was then, this is now, right? Yeah. And so based on what was happening there though, and like you said, the jury hears that statement and that's it for him. That's it for the defendant, right? Yeah. This guy has an FBI badge, like a jury in Bladen County, North Carolina in the seventies hearing this, you know, FBI agent sit down and give his CV and then say this, that's it. Well, right. And, but you know, there's not a situation uh, where that would actually be true. And I don't know if they knew that at that point in time or not. No, no, they did not. Okay. And so do, is there something like that about DNA that we don't know now? That's what I mean. We don't know what we don't know. Well, I know that. (laughs) Well, uh, let me get back to uh, Sledge's case here. A state crime lab analyst testifies that they used rudimentary uh, testing on the seat of the car that Sledge had stolen and was driving. And that was presumptively positive for the presence of blood. That opinion was based solely on the presumptive test and no confirmatory testing was ever conducted to determine whether the substance was in fact blood. And you and I 
we've talked about this a couple of times this year, including with Henry Lee. We think that in the seventies and eighties, like some of that follow-up wasn't done by lab technicians and the experts who end up testifying leave it out or don't realize it wasn't done. I feel like there are a lot of presumptive blood tests that happen in the 70s and 80s that never had a confirmatory uh, follow-up test and that nobody is the wiser. Yeah, no, I agree with you. That's the whole reason I'm pointing this out and kind of harping on what I just said with this dude because we even see that today where like it'll get called out at trial but it wasn't like up until that moment. And if you've got an honest person up there, they have to say, no, we did not confirm. Right. Well, I, um, and I don't want to like mention anything specifically here. I feel like there are uh, like crime scene texts or whatever it would have been in the seventies and eighties collecting evidence. I think that like the fact that it was called the presumptive test, like, it didn't ring any bells. No, they were just excited to have that job. They thought that they were actually like, oh, the presumptive test is the blood test, right? It like yeah, they, they didn't. <laughs> they didn't know the word presumptive meant initial, like the, like this is the preview test. They didn't know that, right? And I and I've come across that in a lot of older cases, and it, it's. It's kind of scary, actually. I'm going to guess if there's a scale for the 70s and that like certain counties in the United States definitely know what a confirmatory test is and certain counties in the United States at the bottom of that scale think that presumptive tests and confirmatory tests are the same thing, that Bladen County, North Carolina, has a strong statistical possibility of being real low on that scale, under 50% somewhere, under the five or towards the one. Towards being a presumptive testing uh, county? Yeah, yeah, like presumptive tests. Like like the meaning is that's the blood test. That's what it was. We did the presumptive test. Right, exactly. And there was blood there, right? Yeah, but I will say that this was an SBI crime lab analyst talking about this back then. I don't know how how much difference there might have been. but That doesn't actually change uh, sort of what I've absorbed about that type of thing. Um. Fortunately, at some point, it becomes a thing where, like, the blood is actually, like, typed and stuff like that. And so, you know, a presumpt- a, a false positive presumptive blood test is not going to give a blood type. It's definitely not going to give you a DNA sample. Correct. So as you're right, as the years progress, this type of thing becomes more reliable because it gets expanded upon. Correct. But at this point, we're looking at a situation, like you just said, they did a presumptive test with no follow-up. So they, they went off the fact, but I wonder if that wasn't presented in court as like, there was blood on that seat. It was. That, exactly. Yeah. He, he, I mean, the, the verbiage isn't really, it, I will say it this way. It's not the state crime lab analysis. That's the problem here. It's like how it was presented and not, really explained to the jury. It was kind of left sitting there. And that's partly on the defense. I I, I tend to agree, but I also feel like the prosecution... Uh, I, I'm I, with you. I you're, The defense's job is to be adversarial and point it out. But you're right. The prosecution shouldn't have let it go forward in the first place. And the fact that everybody missed it is kind of silly. I, I agree with that. I say that based on my next sentences. And that is, Sledge testified in his own defense. 
He denied committing the crime. Now, six months prior to these murders, Sledge was on a prison road crew where another inmate who was a convicted murderer struck Sledge so hard that it cracked Sledge's skull. It was visible on an x-ray. Prison authorities revoked the assailant's honor grade for six months, which is like, so they revoked his ability to go on the road crew as a trustee or a trusted member of the road crew for six months because they, he assaulted Sledge so hard that Sledge had a skull fracture. When the inmate returned to White Lake Prison Camp in September of 1976, he was assigned to the same work detail as Sledge. So Sledge and this guy, they end up doing the, the same detail. Sledge tells the jury that he fears for his life, and even though he has less than a year left on his sentence, he thought it would be safer for him to bail and escape and be on the run than to be inside prison with that guy coming after him. He said on September 5th, 1976, he jumped the fence at the prison and he hid in the woods until nightfall. And then he walked into Elizabethtown. He detailed his path from, from White Lake down to Dillon, South Carolina, where he was arrested. And he explained how he cooperated with authorities afterwards. He told the jury he didn't make any admissions or confessions to Sutton or Baker. Two other inmates who were on the same cell block with Sledge and Sutton testified that Sledge never admitted any kind of involvement in the crime, and he maintained his innocence. After three days of testimony and arguments, the jury deliberated for two full days before declaring that they were unable to reach a unanimous verdict. So the judge declared a mistrial. So in August of 1978, again in Columbus County, Sledge goes on trial for these murders a second time. The testimony pretty much mirrors the first trial. And on August 31st, 1978, the jury convicts Sledge of two counts of second-degree murder, and he gets sentenced at the time to consecutive terms of life in prison. So consecutive means they're boxcarred. They're not being um, run together. In May of 1979, the North Carolina Supreme Court upholds the convictions in the sentence. Over the next two decades, Sledge filed more than 25 post-conviction motions, all in his own handwriting and without the assistance of an attorney. One of them was based on a sworn statement from an inmate who claimed that at the time of Sledge's trial, Baker, one of the witnesses, had privately admitted to this inmate that his testimony was false and that he implicated Sledge because police threatened to charge him with the murder unless he cooperated. All of Sledge's motions were denied. In 2003, Sledge, still without a lawyer, completely pro se, files a request for DNA testing of the physical evidence in his case. Although the court ordered a search for all the evidence, there was no follow-up by any of the agencies involved. None of them took it seriously, and none of them responded to the court order. At that point in 2004, the North Carolina Center on Actual Innocence that we talked about before, they became involved in his case. With their persistence and three additional court orders, some evidence in the case was finally found and sent to the lab for limited testing. The evidence that had been located underwent testing over the next few years. However, the critical hair evidence in the case was not located until August of 2012. And I'm just going to say this, the fact that all of this happens is nothing short of a miracle. 
I agree. Like I was like, I don't know if you've read any of these court orders. They're on the North Carolina um, appeals court page and you can read the procedural history. Uh, They don't take him seriously. First of all, until 2004, when the North Carolina center on actual innocence gets involved. But the fact that any of this evidence was kept with the level of investigation that had gone on here is a miracle. Yeah, it's almost unheard of, really. Um, but I do realize, I, I see sort of how, I want to say, like, coming of age of DNA is happening here, where, like, uh, he filed and uh, Sledge filed in 2003 uh, on his own behalf for the DNA testing. And so that is around the time where that was a thing. And it was hard like there wasn't a whole lot of procedure in place on how to handle that kind of thing, right? No, that's really what made all these innocence projects eventually crop up the way they cropped up. Right. And so um, I, I do sort of see, like, I see the dissonance between like, you know, eight years, it taking eight years to find uh, the critical evidence. However, they found it. They did. And like I said, it's nothing short of a miracle. And they do something in December, 2012, which is, something you just described earlier. They actually are able to do mitochondrial DNA tests on three of the pubic hairs that were found on one of the victim's body. And those test results exclude sledge as a possible source. Right. And so with the mitochondrial DNA, uh, it's a different type of result in which it's specifically used to exclude people. Right. Yes. And so like a high percentage of men would could possibly match this and it still not be their particular hair. Okay. But in this case, it is impossible that it would be Sledge's hair. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense to me. I mean, I don't know how we can go any further with that. The bottom line is he's ruled out as like being any kind of participant in leaving these pubic hairs on the victim's body that the FBI agent had so dutifully pointed out were uh, indistinguishable from from sledges. Right, and I feel like so. I feel like the emphasis somehow this particular test, uh, it's not as in-depth as like developing an actual DNA profile. The mitochondrial DNA test, um, you'll hear it a lot of times in court used by the prosecution saying that a defendant cannot be excluded. Right. And it comes across as if the DNA matched, right? Correct. Um, and that's not the case. And I feel like like the other side of it gets emphasized so much more. But like this is a case where they were able to use this less specific DNA test um, to say, okay, this isn't the defendant. Yeah, they ruled him out altogether. So, you there? Yeah, I'm here. Okay, you got quiet. Um the next problem, so they, they make this match in 2000, in late 2012. They make, excuse me, they uh, they have these tests done in late 2012 where they rule Sledge out. And the next problem comes from Herman Baker and Donnie Sutton. In the spring of 2013, through the investigation done by the North Carolina Center on Actual Innocence, 
Herman Baker recants his testimony. He says that he was promised and received an early parole and he got $3,000 in reward money despite him saying on the stand he didn't get any payment or favorable treatment. He also says that police fed him the details of the crime so that when he's recounting it in court, his account will be credible. Now, Dottie Sutton, by this time, is dead. Now, the Center on Actual Innocence learned that the prosecution had failed to disclose several initial interviews that law enforcement conducted with Sutton during which he said that Sledge had not admitted to the crime. He denied it flat out having anything to do with him. But ultimately, Sutton changed his account to implicate Sledge. And like Baker, Sutton also, Sutton also received an early release onto parole. And he got the other $2,000 out of that $5,000 reward fund. So in early 2013, Sledge takes a polygraph examination. In early 2013, Sledge takes a polygraph examination. The results of that polygraph, which were peer-reviewed by a second examiner, they come together and they look at it and they talk about it. And both examiners report that he shows no sign of deception when he denies committing the crime. And now here's where we get tied back to another case we already covered. In May 2013, Christine Mumma, who's the executive director of the Center on Actual Innocence, she petitions the North Carolina Innocence Inquiry Commission that I was talking about, that's the, the new formation of that, to investigate Sledge's claim of innocence. During the commission's investigation, all of, of the remaining hairs that are found on the victim's body are subjected to DNA testing. Results of that testing is consistent with the original hair testing, and it excludes Sledge as well as the victim's. A re-examination of all the physical evidence, which is the hairs collected from the victim's body, the bloody palm prints on the floor on either side of the sexually assaulted victim's head, all of the fingerprints that are collected from the crime scene, all of the victim's clothing, and the linoleum that they had cut up from around where the victim's laid, all of it excludes Sledge. The investigators discovered that the prosecution had failed to disclose to the defense that there was an alternate suspect who lived about 500 yards from the victim's homes. He had been dropped off the day of the murders near the victim's home in the early morning hours. In a report about the suspect, police noted that a shoe print near the suspect's home was similar to a bloody shoe print in the victim's home. So on January 23, 2015, a three-judge three panel of Superior Court judges appointed by the North Carolina Chief Justice they declare that Sledge is factually innocent, and he gets released from prison after spending more than 36 years behind bars. Now, Sledge does get compensated. He's awarded $750,000 in compensation from the state of North Carolina. Bladen County District Attorney John David, he apologized to Sledge at the hearing. He said there's nothing worse for a prosecutor than convicting an innocent person. David was not the original prosecutor in the case, but he said that he would reopen the investigation. In August of 2015, Sledge filed a federal civil rights lawsuit seeking damages for wrongful conviction. In October 2017, he settled with the Bladen County Sheriff's Office for $4 million. In March of 2020, he settled claims against the State Bureau of Investigation for $900,000 and against the Columbus County Clerk of Court for $2 million. So he collects, and you know, by the time March of 2020 rolls around, 
he collects something like $8 million total. Yeah, it's right around eight. Unfortunately, Sledge died in December of 2020. And I like I, I don't even know how to express how crazy that is. Um, I you know it, it falls in with what you're saying about karma, but I don't know. Maybe maybe everything's really good on the other side when you die, and he just got some sweet release out of that. There's no um, there's no question here. Um, the uh, this was a bad uh, conviction, right? Uh, like we talked about the other case that had some ambiguity that was attached post exoneration. Um, but in this particular case, uh, the North Carolina Supreme court, a three panel, uh, three judge panel appointed to hear this specifically found his actual innocence. Right. Yeah. Um, and so because of that, uh, there's no question here, um, that, you know, he he didn't do it. Now, I bet he wished that he had picked a different day to break out of jail. Or just not escaped at all and just finished that sentence up. He was so close. Right, but he was, I believe that he was afraid. Um, I don't think he was a violent offender. No, he um, wasn't. He was not. And I think that being in a place where uh, he had been previously injured and um, with all the escape attempts. And like you said, he was almost out, but he, I feel like he was under, uh, he was being threatened. Right. And he was seriously injured. Um, and I feel like that he just didn't want, you know, to go through that again. And that's really sad to me, um, that all that occurred and it took so long. Um, but I do see where like, um, you know, but the first jury, was hung right there was a mistrial yep and that says something to me because um I maybe always, they got a little more than we realized well maybe right exactly um it, but to me it's relevant uh and i feel like it's always going to be relevant now you know sometimes that relevance is it just means that something was really skewed right uh, it could be, you know, it could have more to do with the juror than the trial, basically. But I always wonder, like, you know, clearly on a double murder case, they're going to retry it unless just something new happens where they've got a different suspect or something, right? Yeah. Um, but I always wonder, like, how much, you know, how much that plays into um, it when there is a mistrial, a hung jury after the completion of an entire trial, like, you know, you step back and you say, well, wait a second. Right. Um, because you have to, I mean, what changes about the case? Well, nothing changes, maybe something in the presentation, but there was something about this case I saw where, um, he, they had discovered, oh, I think you might've covered it a little bit, but, uh, the, the time of death for the ladies, uh, they weren't sure exactly when it was. Yeah. And so they originally say that it's like eight o'clock that morning. But the truth is by, by the time the bodies are discovered and they get to the scene, and this is based on like medical examiner's notes, um, law enforcement and first responders to the scene, they recognize that the blood was still wet. So it did, probably didn't happen at eight o'clock in the morning if it's wet in the afternoon. And the thinking was 
that there was a window here, depending on how you looked at it, that maybe both things were right. Maybe one of the women died quickly and then one of the women died a little later in the day. Right. And so he had actually, um, when his escape occurred, they had, he had, well, somebody he kept, he had evidence that he, that he was in, uh, he was 40 miles away from the scene of the crime by 3.30 a.m. that morning. So it it still didn't even correlate. Yeah, he got the trucking, man. And, you know, for, for, for all that we can say about this case, I'm, I'm torn on this, but I do, I want to, uh, I want to get to one more thing. I don't know if you want me to do it now or you want me to do it in the outro. Um, I want to talk about like the, the lawyer in this case who is with the center for actual innocence. Did you read some of choice? Okay. Um, I, I don't have anything else on this case. So I'm going to save that for the outro. You got anything else on this guy? Nope. Okay. Now the outro, you know, I kind of admire the chutzpah in this woman. Did you read this, uh, Christine Mama article? I did. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'll share this with, with people. This is, uh, it's an article that gets updated January 20, uh, January 14th, 2016 by Ann Blythe for the Charlotte uh, Observer at the time. It's now with the News and Observer. It's, it's kind of a weird setup there. Uh, this is the, the lawyer for John Sledge. And uh, it's an interesting uh, write-up. So I, I wanted to share it with people. Basically, Christine Mama stepped away from the table that she had been behind for much of the past week on late Thursday afternoon, and she walked into a crowd of applauding attorneys and fans. A three-member North Carolina State Bar disciplinary panel had just announced the decision to admonish Mama, a licensed attorney in North Carolina since 1999, for a minor ethical violation. A written admonish is uh, a written admonition is the lowest level of discipline that the bar can levy on an attorney. So it's, it's a slap on the wrist. Um, after a, after a two year struggle to bat back misconduct allegations that could have resulted in the loss of her license, mama, the head of the NC center on actual innocence was relieved. Uh, it's been over for two years. It's been over two years that I've been dealing with this and I'm just glad that it's over said an emotional mama uh, talking to the gathered media afterwards. I really just wanted it to be over. It's interfered with my life, my family's life, my work. Mama's misconduct was tied to her quest to free Joseph Sledge, now 71, who was in prison for almost four decades for a double homicide he did not commit. Defense attorneys and others gathered at the disciplinary hearing for much of the week. They questioned why the Mama case rose to the level of a disciplinary panel. Some speculated she was being targeted for her work freeing the wrongfully convicted. They questioned why prosecutors linked to the sledge case had never faced misconduct allegations. I think it's outrageous, said Rich Rosen, who taught Mama at the UNC School of Law and helped establish the Innocence and Capital Punishment projects there. I think this is a public embarrassment for the bar. The disciplinary case dates to October 2013, when Mama went to the home of a woman whose brothers had been suspects in the double killing of which Sledge was wrongfully convicted. Her work on his innocence claims showed hairs found at the scene did not match the DNA of Sledge, and she pushed Bladen County District Attorney John David to reopen the investigation of the homicides. David and Mama clashed over how to proceed, and the hearing this week revealed a palpable friction between the two. 
Jim Cooney, a Charlotte lawyer and one of four members of MUMMA's high-profile defense team, told the panel in his closing arguments Thursday that David spent more time investigating MUMMA than Sledge's claim of innocence. Miss Mama did what we expect an honorable attorney to do when she had the evidence that convinced her an injustice had taken place. She took all the necessary steps to correct it. The bar brought professional misconduct allegations against Mama after learning that the attorney had a water bottle tested for DNA that she took from a relative of a potential suspect in the sledge case. Mama had said she unintentionally picked up the bottle at the home of Marie Andrus, whose brothers had been suspects in the double homicide. Andrus testified this week she had forgiven Mama and supported her efforts to free an innocent man from prison, but at the time she had declined to provide a DNA sample. Andrus said she had a distrust of law enforcement and the justice system, and she wanted to protect her brothers from being framed. State bar prosecutors contend that Mama violated the rights of, and- of Andrus when she tested the water bottle without her permission. The bar also accused Mama of engaging in conduct involving dishonesty, fraud, deceit, or misrepresentation, and acting in a way that interfered with the administration of justice. She was accused of providing a reporter at the News and Observer a transcript that the bar contends was not a public record, although her attorneys contend it was, and then not being forthcoming with her colleagues in the profession about how the media obtained the document. Mama and her attorneys argued that several thoughts were driving her zealous behavior as she tried to meet her obligations for representing a wrongfully convicted man. She was worried about court deadlines approaching and her belief that David would not work to free Sledge unless he had a new suspect. David rejected that allegation. Lenore Hodge, the attorney representing the bar in its complaint, urged the panel to see past the fog that she contends Mama and her defense team created. From the start, Hodge argued that the Sledge case should not factor into the panel's decision. Hodge pointed out that though David and Mama had clearly taken adversarial positions over how to proceed with the Sledge case, a judge had informed them in a hearing that he wanted to hear all the evidence in the case and that a decision on whether to grant relief would not be made until all the evidence was in. Hodge said that Mama knew that the NC Innocence Inquiry Inquiry Commission was investigating the case and intended to pursue DNA testing of the suspects in which Mama was interested. The commission is a state agency unique to North Carolina that is charged with providing an independent and balanced truth-seeking forum for credible post-conviction claims of innocence. Hodge claimed that Mama concocted a narrative about feeling overly pressured by the district attorney to produce a credible suspect other than Sledge only after her actions. She knew what she was doing was wrong, said Hodge. Joseph Cheshire V, also part of the defense team, told reporters afterwards that he thought the bar prosecution was meant to persecute a defense attorney whose work exposed flaws in the justice system and revealed prosecutorial misconduct. I worry about the prosecutions against people like Chris Mumma, Cheshire said. I worry about the impact it has on justice and the message being sent to people who have the courage to do that work. Rick Glazier, a state lawmaker who now heads the North Carolina Justice Center, described the Barr case as a waste of resources that would have been better spent on investigating claims of innocence, such as sledges. That's where we want the resources to be spent, not on prosecuting a lawyer who is doing an extraordinary job to try to work for a man's freedom who is innocent and behind bars for a crime he did not commit. This state needs more Chris Mummas, not less of them. What do you think of all that? I think it's all ridiculous. See, I think she's wrong to have done it, but I also think she's been watching like 
you know, I, I get where she's coming well, from. Well, I mean, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't really have an opinion of whether she was right or wrong, but she's not a law enforcement officer. Okay? That's true. She's, she's she on the defense. Not, she did not violate anybody's constitutional rights. Okay. Because she can't. She can't, right. She's a defense attorney and, you know, for, you know, just, and it never says that she has violated anyone's constitutional rights, but uh, to go before a bar, the bar, it just means that the bar has found an issue with some conduct, right? Yeah. And usually it's like an ethical issue. Like, should you go um, as a, cause you know, a defense attorney is still um, an officer of the court to some extent, right? Yeah. And so they're held to an ethical standard. Now, I haven't seen – this happened in 13, right? Is this 13? Uh, 16. Oh, 13 is when she did it, and 16 is when this is being – Okay. And so um, I have not heard anything with regard to follow-up on uh, – like after Sledge was uh, – exonerated has anybody else been charged i i looked i, um, just, I didn't see it um and that's a good question so to me um it was a huge rate waste of resources to have this all happen like it did uh because she essentially had to defend a nothing burger because uh even if she got the DNA tested, there was either like a negative result or no result at all. And um, honestly, and it says she mistakenly took the water bottle, right? And then I wonder, well, did she mistakenly take the water bottle, get it tested, and it matched? And Well, we don't know that right okay but how okay so if i had somebody over at my house all right and they mistakenly took a water bottle from my house i more than likely would not notice uh you're asking good questions i don't have the answers to all of those where (laughs) did it come into play that you know because this is the sister of you know uh, possible perpetrators in this in the in the crime that her client uh, she was trying to get him exonerated for, which ultimately it did happen, right? And so, to me, like unless there was something to it, why did it even come up? It's weird, right? Hey, you're asking good questions. I do not know the answer to that. I was um, I did not do enough homework for you on this case, but I appreciate you always being willing to give me more things to deep dive in my uh, Christmas <laughs> holiday. No, it's, it's I, only appreciated. I, well, I, I just want to point out, you know, uh, police, now they weren't willing to do it because right. this is the side of the, of the investigation part that like, um, I do think she was like a little bit almost overdriven, right? Because I don't see why a defense attorney would need to present another perpetrator in place of the one she's trying to defend and be and have exonerated, right? That's ridiculous. Yeah. But I, I sort of see what's happening there. But law enforcement could go and pick up this lady's trash if they were so inclined, right? Yeah. And they could like without violating her fourth amendment rights, 
they could, uh, you know, use the, uh, anything they found inside of it. And with a sister, you're going to have enough of a match to identify if it was one of her brothers. Yeah. I, if they're all biological siblings, you, you can get something out of it. Correct. And, and so it's going to be pretty blatantly obvious. I assume this is like the 50 yards away or whatever the person are. I don't know who exactly it is. Uh, they identify the sister, but anyway, my point is this was a waste. This woman didn't do anything that warranted any of this. And it leaves me wondering how did this come to be an issue? Huh. That's a it's an excellent question. Because of the way this went down, I don't know that I can get the answer easily, but I I do know now that I have to go look and try. Do you think that they punished her for doing it and that they didn't use whatever result was found? That seems like that would be really messed up, don't you think? Well, I I don't know how it comes about that I don't I don't know the answer to your question, which is how does it come about that they know about her doing this? Well, the, I I mean, how did the woman notice unless she was just like and then, okay, so if she noticed her taking the bottle, why didn't she stop her, right? Did she really accidentally <laughs> pick it up? Like, what huh. is happening there? And the fact that, like, the, if, the funny thing, and it's not funny, ha-ha, it's just sort of like, wow. Um, the funny thing is if it didn't match, like, this could have saved a lot of trouble, right? Uh, as far as her, because I feel like she asked for a DNA it sample. If it didn't match, wouldn't she just not mention it? I mean, I think so, but I, I don't know. I've, it seems like this was brought to the attention for some reason. Now, all they did was give her like a very, uh, the lightest uh, reprimand they could, right? Correct, yes. So what does that tell you? It tells you like the bar was thinking like this is ridiculous too, right? And it, it honestly, it was ridiculous because nothing has come of it. Hmm. Well, I, so she comes to this house and she says, hey, I want to get a DNA sample. She does do that. And then, I said, oh, this is crazy. I did not, you know, all I've been doing all this damn work. And Joe Sledge has a, this is wild. Joe Sledge has a. Wikipedia page. I didn't even know it. I was I was looking at something else this whole time. So here's what it says. Uh, Christine Mama, the director of the North Carolina Center on Actual Innocence, was accused of inappropriate professional conduct in the case after she took a water bottle from the home of Marie Andrus and had DNA tests performed without her permission. Mama received an official uh, admonition, the lowest form of warning available to the disciplinary panel. The evidence came back inconclusive and was not used in the exoneration of Sledge. Which it wouldn't have been. It would have been used in the prosecution of a new person. So ultimately, I still don't know the answer. But I did find out that Joseph Sledge has a Wikipedia, which he should have a Wikipedia. I, I have a tendency to agree with you on that. Um, a lot of th this type of uh, case, it... These cases are more important than people realize. Well, it they are, but also uh, one of the interesting things is like 
the conviction is like such a big deal and the um, exoneration is a lot of times not such a big deal. And then the way that they, uh, the way that the bar held this inquiry or whatever, um, it, I wonder if they would if they would hold it again or if they would simply uh, dismiss the complaint, right? I, I, uh, I'm just curious. I don't know the answer to that. I, well, well, right. It's more rhetorical, but to me it no, just I know. seems like, you know, are they really going to be um, looking into every single one of these types of claims? And, like, you know, if so, like, why? And, um I think it's a pretty unique set of circumstances overall that you have the head of an innocence query trying to exonerate this guy going and asking for DNA that's refused in 2013 and then turning it all on its head by, like, I I don't know. You're not going to run into that very often that she does things like that. Right. And it ends up not mattering anyway. It, It really didn't matter. It didn't matter anyway. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time. So I'm going to tell you guys a a few things about some of the folks who are helping sponsor our show. Now, Labrati Creations sponsors our show, and you can always use the the Crime XS code there. Um, You can also just message them uh, at uh, Labrati Creations, and they will generally do something for the people who come from True Crime XS. They were our very first sponsor. They've done a lot for the show, and that code is CrimeXS at LabratiCreations.com. The first new advertisers that we have, and I've, I've selected all of these guys. I've selected all of these advertisers. So the very first one is Cure. Now, I'm going to tell you guys about this, uh, about Cure as being one of our sponsors. If you're an athlete, you know that proper hydration is key to peak performance. But plain water can be boring, and sports drinks can be filled with artificial ingredients and added sugars. That's why we love Cure. It's a clean and effective way to stay hydrated and perform at your best. I use it late in the day when I switch out of caffeine mode, specifically when I hit the pool or I go play tennis with my wife. I use Cure to help me stay hydrated. It helps me recover after a long day. 
Now, you guys may not know this, but I build things. Right now, I've been building several structures on our property out here. Among those is a new podcast studio space for myself. I do a lot of that work at night and into the wee hours. And I always have some cure with me to go into my aluminum water bottle. Hydration is not just about filling up my aluminum bottle with water. Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and rehydrate quickly. Whether I'm building things or putting the podcast together or chasing these dogs that you sometimes hear in my studio up and down the trails to get them worn out, Cure Hydration is the way that I choose to go. Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution or an ORS that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and to rehydrate quickly. The formula is made with all natural ingredients like coconut water powder and pink Himalayan salt. It's free from artificial flavors, from sweeteners and preservatives. Cure Hydration is vegan, gluten-free and non-GMO, making it a great option for anyone with dietary restrictions or preferences. The packets are convenient and easy to use. You just mix them with your water and you drink. They're perfect for on the go. They're perfect for travel. And anytime you need a quick and effective hydration boost, ready to combat dehydration, then you try Cure today and feel the difference for yourself. You can use code TRUECRIMEXS for 20% off your order. That's T-R-U-E-C-R-I-M-E-X-S. I have a link that I'm putting in the most recent episode show notes, and True Crime Access will get you 20% off. Our second sponsor for the show today is Laird. Now, Laird has a list of things that they want me to tell you about. They have better ingredients with amazing taste and functional benefits. They have a superfood creamer crafted from the highest quality, all-natural, real food ingredients. All Laird products are sustainably sourced and thoroughly tested to ensure that you're incorporating the cleanest, finest fuel into your routine. They have all natural whole food ingredients and they contain naturally occurring MCTs made from coconut oil. There's no artificial flavors, there's no colors or additives, and there's no sugar from highly refined corn syrup. They want me to talk about my love of coffee, but the truth is I don't do much with coffee. But let me tell you someone who does. My wife has to have a cup of coffee every day. Now, I've fallen off recently, but one of the big things that I've done since the beginning of our relationship is she used to go and get a Starbucks every morning. I have substituted that out by always trying to make her coffee. It's not going to be every single day of time from when I met her, but for the most part, almost every day, I make her coffee. I put her creamers together, and I make sure that she has a good way to start her day. So with Laird, he started experimenting with his morning ritual almost two decades ago. He found that when he started adding fats to his morning cup, like coconut oil, he had amazing energy throughout the rest of his day. He gradually perfected this recipe for an epic cup of fuel, and he began sharing it with his friends in the surf community. I'm an ocean guy, so... I saw this item and I was like, okay, we're going to try this one out. Are you ready to feel more energized, more focused, and supported? Go to LairdSuperfood.com and add nourishing plant-based foods to fuel you from sunrise to sunset. And you can use our promo code at checkout to save 15% off your purchase today. 
Our offer code for this for Laird is going to be True Crime XS. Pretty much everywhere except for Labarty Creations, if you use True Crime XS, that will get you uh, at Laird, it'll get you 15% off. At some of the other places, it'll get you 20% off. Uh, I'm going to tell you about two more uh, sponsors today. So the first one is, uh, the third one is Liquid IV. So let's talk about the real reasons that you need to hydrate. Late night TV binging, back-to-back Zoom meetings, going on a walk with your friends. Everyday hydration is not just for high-energy athletic endeavors. Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. It's now available in sugar-free. This is years in the making, but Hydration Multiplier Sugar-Free uses a proprietary zero-sugar hydration solution with no artificial sweeteners. It's got three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, but it's also got eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness. Liquid IV hydrates two times faster than water alone. Keep your daily routine exciting with three new flavors. They've got white peach, green grape, and lemon lime. I love all of these flavors, but... I think that my favorite is probably the green grape. Uh, White peach I use as a secondary flavor and lemon lime I leave here for my kids and my kids and my wife. Uh, Liquid IV believes that equitable access to clean and abundant water is the foundation of a healthier world. They also partner with leading organizations to fund and foster innovative solutions that help communities protect both their water and their futures. To date, Liquid IV has donated over 39 million servings in 50-plus countries around the world. You can get 20% off when you grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier sugar-free or any other variant at liquidiv.com and use code TrueCrimeXS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code TrueCrimeXS at liquidiv.com. And the last sponsor I want to tell you about is Zencaster. We are part of Zencaster's creative network. We've been using Zencaster since about midway into our first season. Uh, Meg and I experimented with a lot of different ways to put the podcast together. And the truth is Zencaster was an, an integral ingredient to us being able to bring you this show. It's so easy. It's now super easy. You can record a podcast with Zencaster. You can log in using your browser and you start recording a high quality podcast right away. You can record studio quality sound and up to 4K video with your guest. You get to feel a sense of Zen knowing that Zencaster's multi-layered backups ensure you will always have your recordings in the highest quality, even if the connection is unstable. You sound your best. I mean, if you've ever worried about what you sound like, Zencaster's post-production process makes you sound buttery smooth. It automatically removes those ums and ahs in your recordings. It removes those awkward pauses and conversation too. You can set the right podcast loudness and levels while reducing background noise with a click of a button. That's how you don't hear my dogs every uh, second of every episode. Zencaster is all in one. If you've thought about podcasting before and realized that you need a lot of different tools and services, those days are now over. With Zencaster's all-in-one podcasting platform, you can create your podcast all in one place. 
and you can distribute to Spotify, Apple, and other ma major destinations. Just go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use my code TrueCrimeXS, and you're going to get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. You can also check out the other plans they have available. I want you to have the same easy experiences that I do for all my podcasting and content needs. So Zencaster.com slash pricing. The offer code is TrueCrimeXS. And it's time for you to share your story today. Uh, we are also adding New Era as a uh, sponsor for the show. New Era Cap is a headwear and apparel brand founded in 1920 in Buffalo, New York. Now, uh, I actually have some experience with New Era Caps. My dad and I have been through multiple iterations of baseball caps through the years. We collect different styles, different eras. And now my teenager has started his own cap collection and has several New Eras as the centerpieces. Our favorite teams may not be the same, but our outfits are all topped with the same new era ball caps. Uh, we love the quality and the ability to wear what the players are wearing. Not to mention new era is the leading headwear manufacturer with quality licensed products. You can support your favorite college or pro team in style from the official headwear provider for the MLB, NFL, and NBA. You can get a stylish accessory for your everyday ensemble and support True Crime XS. Just shop the official headwear and get 15% off when you go to neweracap.com. That's N-E-W-E-R-A-C-A-P.com slash true crime access. You can also use the code true crime access at checkout. That's it. That's all you have to do. And that's 15% off your order using the promo code true crime access.